You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Redemption Hill Church. If you're like, hey, who's the guy with glasses? That's just simply because I got the cheaters on today because I'm preaching from an iPad, um, which I normally don't do, but it helps me see. Um, So it's not like a trendy thing that the kids do these days where, like, they're actually not prescription. They are, um, for the record. But if you do that, that's cool. I'm, I'm okay with trendy. Some people think I should, I could use a little more trendy. All right. Relative to the last four sermons uh, from Ephesians, uh, today we're going to actually kind of pick up the pace a little bit, I guess. Uh, We're going to tackle four verses. So if the last few weeks felt like riding a chuck wagon from the 1900s or the 1800s, today might feel like more of the uh, bullet train. Uh, Could there be more than one sermon in Ephesians 1, you know, 7 to 10? Absolutely. But, you know, when you preach two books of the Bible, you got to make decisions about where to cut things off and where to continue and things like that. So in verse 7, we read of a thought that is, of course, connected to the previous verses, but also distinct. And that's going to come out, I think, in this particular message. Verses 3 to 6 are about the purpose and plan of God the Father. So in eternity past, what is God the Father doing? What what is the triune God doing? What's the plan of God the Father for you and for me? We talked a lot about that. So that three-part mini-mini-series, Chosen for Adoption. We spent a lot of time on that. And in verse 7, we pivot toward a focus on God the Son to carry out God the Father's plan of redemption. As I've stated before, Ephesians 1, verse 3, all the way to verse 14, shows us the work of the entire Godhead. So I've mentioned God the Father, which we've discussed plenty about. Today we're talking a lot about God the Son. And what we're going to get to here in a few weeks is what's the Holy Spirit's role in all this? You get that in verse 13 and 14. So that's coming. So we've got this string of pearls that I've been mentioning, not only strengthens and clarifies what we know about God's love to save, it also provides comfort and peace as we see God's good and gracious will to show undeserving sinners His amazing grace. His amazing grace. Yes, you are an undeserving sinner, Christian, who has received God's amazing grace. I mean, this this whole passage should lead us to worship and sing, right? And I'll just simply add, because Sarah came up, and I, just, I was feeling this earlier in prayer as, as well. May this particular passage of the Bible revive your heart if you feel like you've been wandering through the desert spiritually. May this revive your heart. So let me pray briefly, and then let's get into this. This is going to be fun. Oh God, thank you for your word. And once again, from this pulpit, we come underneath your word, knowing that it is indeed authoritative for our life. It instructs us for our life. It tells us about who you are and what you've done to save. And as we're going to see more pointedly this afternoon, what you've done to redeem. 
So by the power of the Spirit, give me faithful words to preach. And may these precious saints in front of me, may they have hearts to receive what it is you have to say for our good and for the honor and glory of your great name. Amen. All right, I love reading historical novels, especially if they are mystery novels. I don't know if you're kind of into that genre. I've picked it up later in life. I get bugged by the people who do read these type of books and they cheat by going to the end to discover, uh, you know, how everything unfolded. <laughs> that bothers me. I like to go page to page, work my way through the entire story, see how things unfold. You know, what's the tension that is developing? And I want to see how that tension is resolved. Often there is some type of mystery that needs to be kind of revealed. For example, when, when someone is murdered at the beginning of the novel, I want to know by the time I get to the last page who was holding the knife. <laughs> like I remember one, probably recently, maybe a month ago or something, Sharice and I were at a movie. We were, you know, at the Palms in, in Waukee and we're watching the movie. Didn't know much about it, but we went and we get to the end of the movie and it's like, there's no resolution. We were super bugged. <laughs> I want resolution. Who's the murderer? We just, we left with the mystery um, there have been a few books that I have read in movies like I just mentioned where things just don't get solved. It just leaves you hanging and it's so frustrating. Um, many, peop many people, most people when they read a book uh, or watch a movie want to see tension resolved or the mystery revealed. At the very least, give me a part two to look forward to. For Christians, the moment their heart was regenerated, a mystery was solved. We see that word musterion in the Greek in our passage today. The moment their heart was regenerated, a mystery was solved. A secret was revealed. Resolving the tension and answering the mystery can be summed up with dealing with this question. How can a sinful human being, an undeserving human being, be redeemed and forgiven before a holy and just God? If you just simply ask that question, and if that question is true, it just leaves you longing for the answer. How can I, Sean Powers, a sinful human being, be reconciled to God, the one who created the universe, who created me? A God who's holy and just. I want the answer to that. Now, there's a big difference between knowing God's mysterious will and reading a mystery novel. I understand. The moment a Christian is saved, they realized what was veiled had been made clear to the eyes and to the heart. For those who don't know Christ, resolving the mystery's tension will remain elusive without God's intervention and help. Without God, any answer to how a person is reconciled to a holy God remains an unsolved mystery. I want us to look at our passage, Ephesians 1, verses 7 to 10, in perhaps an unorthodox manner. I want to work backwards. I want us to look at verses 9 and 10, and then we're going to look at verses 7 to 8. Verses 9 and 10 tell us the big, kind of the big picture of what's going on in God's plan of redemption. And then in verses 7 to 8, the details of the plan are made more clear. They're made known. 
Now, like I said, it's not a clean break between verses 8 and 9, but breaking up will help us organize kind of the series of ideas that are presented in this passage. So let's, let's dial into verses 9 and 10 first. Here are the big ideas in verses 9 and 10. Because God is infinite, because we're finite, there are aspects of God we just don't know about. Like it, takes a, it takes a humble person to kind of come to that conclusion. We, we tend, as human beings, want to know everything. Right? Like, we can Google it. We should be able to Google something and get all the answers that we need. That's not the case when we're talking about the creator of the universe. God is infinite. We are finite. We are limited to some degree about knowing who God is. Think of it this way. When you die and go to heaven, I believe you will continue to learn more about God. You'll learn more about his character. And you'll learn more about the depth of his love for you. The point being, because God is infinite, there's much we don't know about God's will. However, God has chosen to make his mysterious plan of redemption known at a particular time in history. God has made that known to some. God's mysterious plan, which has been made known, also has like a verifiable goal. What is the goal? To unite all things. That was verse 10. God has a plan, and at just the right time, God shared the plan, and his plan has a purpose. Uh, for a moment, consider the mystery that accompanies uh, Christmas presents. When I was young, I did not know what was underneath uh, the wrapping paper. Now, full disclosure, I did, from time to time, sneak up to the closet where the presents were before they got wrapped, maybe, to see was there. Kids, don't do that. Uh, that was bad, Sean. But generally speaking, like Christmas is a great thing. Like you got, you got, the, you got this present, there's the wrapping paper, it gets under the tree and there, there's some things you know, like there's a present underneath the tree that has a tag which has the name Sean Powers on it. So while the details of the present were a mystery, what was not a mystery is that there was a present underneath the Christmas tree. And at just the right time, at just the right time, Christmas Day morning at the Powers house growing up, that's when we opened presents. The details of the mystery were going to be made known. There it is. That's what I've been waiting for. In verse 9, it says, God is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. So what does it mean for God's will to be mysterious and then for the mystery to be made known? Does everyone know now know about God's will after he made it known? One of the temptations when we read verse 9 is to think before the life of Christ, nothing about God's plan of redemption had been made known. Some people kind of like think that, well, we didn't know anything, now we know something. That's not entirely what's going on. That's not what Paul means. Like the Old Testament is replete with verses telling us about God's plan of redemption. The writers of the New Testament made this clear along with our Lord Jesus. 
Here's an example from Acts 2 from Peter's Pentecost sermon. Peter knew that the Old Testament was talking about Jesus, and Peter knew that King David knew something about Jesus. Uh, Just check out this passage. This is, again, Peter's Pentecost sermon. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him to your, to your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Talked a lot about God's definite plan and foreknowledge last week. You crucified and killed him by hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, here, listen, look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, that him is Jesus. Peter Peter goes on to quote King David who penned Psalm 16, which is a reference to the Messiah. So just like the Christmas present underneath the tree, some things have been made known, but there was going to be a day when the mystery was going to be fully known. I think Jesus also helps us to know what is meant by mystery in verse 9. In Matthew 22, there's this big debate that takes place. Um, a, deb- a debate breaks out between a few religious leaders of the Sadducees and with Jesus. The topic of debate was the resurrection. Uh, the Sadducees were attempting to put Jesus into an intellectual corner. It's kind of one of those gotcha questions, right? If we just ask the right question, he's going to mess up and we'll be able to condemn him. That's what they were trying to do. Here's what they tried to do. The Sadducees, who ironically do not believe in a resurrection, asked Jesus if a woman is married and then the husband dies and that, that woman remarries and that husband dies. And if that pattern is repeated over and over at the resurrection, who, they asked Jesus, who is this woman going to be married to in heaven? They're just just smug, just thinking he ain't going to get out of this one. Before Jesus makes his point, where he does says there's no earthly marriage, he says this to them. You're wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. What's the point? You could be staring at something your entire life and not know a thing about what you're looking at. For the Sadducees, the resurrection and what heaven will be like after death was a mystery, even though the scriptures were right in front of their eyes. But here's what it means for God's mystery to be made known just at the right time. Or as Galatians says, the fullness of time. On the one hand, it is certainly true that from the incarnation of Jesus Christ onward, more details about the prophesied Messiah had been made, have been made known. Yes, absolutely. It's Christmas Day and you're opening up the present to see what's inside. The life and teachings of Jesus Christ in the Gospels tells us so much about God's mysterious plan to save people to himself. 100% without a doubt. On the other hand, knowing God's mystery happens when the Holy Spirit makes known to a person God's plan. For example, what the Sadducees needed more than anything to understand the scriptures was for the Holy Spirit to help them see God's plan in the scriptures. That's what they needed. 
The Holy Spirit is the key that unlocks the door to everything God has made known. Without the key, God's plan remains a mystery. Like, you know, for, for many years, um, many years of formal education to today, I have read many scholars who hold PhDs in New Testament studies or biblical studies, like they study Greek and Hebrew, whatever. And while folks who hold some of these PhDs have all kinds of knowledge about the Bible, not, not all of them are Christian, and they don't believe in the message of the Bible. They're not concerned with solving the mystery. These are guys who are smarter than me. Like, I read their books. They don't read my books because I haven't written any books. Like, they're just smarter than me. Yet, they're like the Sadducees. They need the Holy Spirit to unlock the door to truly understand the mystery revealed by God. The answer to the mystery is right in front of them, but they need help. Without the Holy Spirit, the entire Bible contains a bunch of words on pages. is to be just understood intellectually or even scientifically. What God told the prophet Isaiah to say to Israel holds true to this day in, in, in every generation. Right after Isaiah gets this call, you know, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Next verse, <laughs> go, say to these people, keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. The point being here is that, hey, Isaiah, you're going to go preach. You're going to preach truth to them. A lot of people aren't going to listen. They may know it up here in their head. They don't know it down here in the heart and in the soul. So, God's mystery has been revealed to those the Holy Spirit has chosen to disclose it. And the purpose and goal of God through his revealed mystery is, is read at the end of verse 10. To unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Once again, the theme of unity arises in Ephesians. Not only is God's chosen people united to Christ through the gospel, but it is God's will to unite heaven and earth to Christ. The implications of the revealed mystery are more than your personal salvation and redemption. The goal is for all things. How many things? A few things? No. Some things? No. Uh, all things. All things. Imagine in your head what all includes. It's a lot of stuff. Heaven and earth. All things to be reconciled to God, to be united through Christ. Like, think about what that means for heaven and earth to be united to Christ. Like, in a moment, we'll focus on God's plan of redemption for his chosen and adopted people. But redemption can be stood in an eschatological sense. Like, we're looking forward. Like, what's to come? Meaning, God's purpose and plan is to reverse the effects because of the fall. Since we, you know, that we read about in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve's rebellion and sin against God took place in the Garden of Eden. Like, 
the effects of that are going to be reversed and all things are going to be united to Jesus. God is currently at work to redeem and restore what has been broken because of sin. Like, just think about all that. All around we see pain, brokenness, division, and struggle. Sin has made life hard. In Romans 8.22, it says, Creation even groans for redemption. The creation. A final day of redemption. Creation groans for all things to be united to Christ with finality. And there will be a day when all things in heaven and earth will come together and the purity that we read about in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall will once again be realized. The revelation of this mystery has been made known by Christ, through Christ, because of Christ, and for Christ. It's truly astonishing. Here are the working details of God's plan that will lead us to the ultimate goal of God's plan, the triumphal unity of all things. Like my father-in-law, Les, says this all the time, make a plan, work the plan. <laughs> make a plan, work the plan. What we see in these passages and when these, these portions of Scripture, God is making a plan and he's working his plan. God made known the secret of his will the secret plan of his will, which was according to his good pleasure, which he purposed, or set beforehand in Christ. The purpose of the Father was to be affected in Christ. Christ was the basis and the goal of that mystery, of this mystery. Christ would provide the sacrifice, and thus it would be possible to culminate all things in him. He is the sacrifice. So everything's going to be unified through him and in him and by him and for him. This was the secret of God's will that could not be unraveled by human ingenuity or study is revealed by God through Christ. Now, regarding God's revealed plan, there are several gaps I need to fill in. Let's look at the details. Let's focus on the details of how God's mystery has been made known. And again, we're working backwards. Here's verse 7 and verse 8 again. In him, you're familiar with that language by now, or in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Yeah, the theme continues. The mystery of God's purpose and will is for those who are in Christ. And at just the right time, God's plan of redemption was enacted through Christ. So what is redemption? Like the, the name of the church is Redemption Hill Church. <laughs> One would hope there was some purpose behind that name. What is redemption? How does redemption differ from the other word we use to talk about how man is reconciled to God, which is salvation? We use that language too because it's biblical. Now here's what salvation means in the Bible. And then I want to explain more fully what redemption means because the two terms are often confused, even though they're for certain they're related. Biblically, salvation refers to the act of a person saved from the eternal consequences of sin. It means God has rescued you, Christian, from eternal separation and damnation in hell. God's great mission brings, begins and ends in Christ. If you have faith in Christ, then you have been saved and you will be saved. 
I've used this example in the past. Salvation is not God rescuing you while you're drowning in the ocean and then all of a sudden someone throws you the life preserver and you somehow whip your arm over the life preserver and you're kind of, you know, pulled into the boat. No. Biblical salvation means your circumstances are much worse. Your body's at the deepest part of the ocean. You can't breathe. You're dead. Your heart's dead. However, in God's mercy, he rescues you from the bottom of the ocean and makes your heart beat for the first time. God rescues you from the bottom of the ocean so you can breathe fresh air for the first time. You breathe this air knowing that it was provided from God for you. God's gracious act of salvation is God saving or rescuing you from yourself. Redemption is slightly different. Redemption is needed when, when something has gone wrong that needs to be made right. Good parents understand the value of redemption through parenting their children. Uh, kids, because they're human, sin. And sometimes sin requires discipline. So a child does something wrong and there are consequences. But a good parent always desires to see their child redeemed from the place of discipline. They want to see their kids come back. They want to see their kids learn from sin and experience a sense of redemption. Here's another way to think about redemption. While redemption can mean rescue, salvation, it can also have like a legal connotation. Let's say I loan you 50 bucks. It's like, you know, Pastor Sean, I got to get something. I'm out of money. $50. Okay, here you go. The moment I loan you $50, you are in my debt. Let's say over time you realize you can't pay back the debt. As the one who holds your debt, I could take, I'm not going to take legal action on you. I could take legal action on you, you know? The person who doesn't pay back their debt can be punished for not paying back what they owe. Biblical redemption looks like that. Every time you sin, your debt against the creator of the universe, God, grows. Because God is holy and just, your sin debt needs to be accounted for. And here's the deal. You are incapable of paying back your debt. It's too great. It's too much. It's, it's so overwhelming. The Bible says that a ransom needs to be paid on your behalf. A payment needs to be made on your behalf. Like, have you ever read the book of Ruth? I was, before I um, came to church, I was working out at the gym, and I was just thinking about the book of Ruth. It just came to mind because I was doing devotions with my kids in the morning. And it, it's a beautiful story of redemption, if you've ever read it. Uh, here, here's some of the cliff notes. In the, in the, it begins with, uh, by, by this woman named Naomi, who is a widow, and then her daughter-in-law becomes a widow. Her name is Ruth. Because of the deaths of their husbands, they have nothing but the clothes on their back. They got nothing. In an attempt to start a new life, they move from Moab to Canaan. And in due time, Ruth meets a man named Boaz. By the end of the story, Boaz takes in Ruth and Naomi from a secure life with their husbands to nothing to a secure life with Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi experienced redemption. Whatever debt they owed, Boaz is like, paid off, took care of it. 
I took care of it. In 1 Timothy 2.6, it says that Jesus paid the ransom at just the right time. Jesus paid off your sin debt at just the right time. So the mystery of God has been made known to those who have faith. Only the Son of God could provide the proper ransom. The Son of God paid your ransom with his life. It seems to me there's a litany of redemption stories in literatures and in movies. Matter of fact, just right before we started our service, uh, Ryan had mentioned one of his favorite movies that has an amazing redemption story arc. And I'd never seen it, but he was even recognizing um, there are plenty of books and movies where we see redemption. There's a lot of places we don't see redemption, which I'll talk about here in a moment. Here's one of my favorite examples uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. we got this guy named Edmund. He's selfish. He's a rebellious brother. But he is tricked and taken in by the, the white witch. Edmund's desire, his, his uh, fleshly desires cause him to believe lies of the witch. It eventually kind of ends up in Narnian jail. And, and then the story moves on. We get Aslan, the lion, and the king of Narnia. He bargains with the white witch and trades his innocent life for that of the guilty life of Edmund. And so Aslan takes the punishment. The sacrifice of Aslan redeemed Edmund. So what? is an acceptable payment for our sin debt. We're talking about redemption. What is the acceptable payment for our sin debt? Our passage is absolutely clear. It's blood. In verse 7, Paul says the payment or cost of your ransom is the blood of Jesus. Throughout the entire Bible, blood is a powerful image of what is required for redemption. In the Old Testament, the ceremonial sacrificial system frequently required the blood of animals for the forgiveness of sins. The sacrifice of animals seems archaic to our sensibilities. It certainly does, right? Um, if, if you're walking to someone's house and they had an altar and they're like, you know, throwing the machete down on the altar, like that's, we would be like, I'm out. <laughs> Call the police. It's weird to us, but it was typical for much of human history, especially Jewish history. When people think of the sacrifice of animals and the shedding of blood, many assume uh, there's little value for life. I mean, PETA would go nuts if the Old Testament sacrificial system was still in place today. Lots of phone calls. But here's the correction in reality of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The sacrifice and the shedding of the blood of animals was not because life was devalued. It was meant to show the opposite. Life is to be valued. Life is precious. To take blood out of an animal or a human being meant death. Many, many people who farm, I'm learning this as I've lived out in a farm, many people who farm understand the value of life, even if some farmers take life. Like you can raise a cow, and in our case, we got chickens, geese, and ducks. And you can treat them with respect. You know, protect them from predators, right? But also know that in their end, they serve another purpose. It's to feed people so they can live. 
When Jesus shed his blood, it was to redeem his people. Jesus shed his blood so that his people could live. Let's look back at our text. What else did the blood of Jesus accomplish? Forgiveness. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Anyone who knows the mystery of God's plan, like you've been given the key, you, you've, un, you've unwrapped the Christmas present, you know what's inside, it's Christmas Day. Anyone who knows the mystery of God's plan has been forgiven of their trespasses. Now you're probably more familiar with the word sin than you are with the word trespass. The two words um, are used synonymously, but there, uh, there is a difference that I like to tease out. The Greek word for sin, harmatia, indicates your inability to reach a mark or obtain a goal. For example, you cannot reach the righteous standard of living required by you and for you under the law of God. Without the righteousness of Christ, you are unable to be righteous yourself. So let's say, let's say I told you God right now is going to hit the reset button on your sins and trespasses. And from this time forth, if you can just keep the Ten Commandments, not 613, just the Ten, then you could go to heaven. Do you think you can keep those Ten? I see that face. No, no, you can't. You cannot live up to God's standard on your own. That's what sin means. You just, you can try, but you need help. The Greek word for trespass is slightly different. When you trespassed against God, you were making a conscience and willful act against God's holiness and righteousness. You do not live up to God's righteous standard because you do not want to. You are acting in willful rebellion. Consider your life and your sins and trespasses. You are in desperate need of forgiveness, not only for your past sins and trespasses, but for your future sins and trespasses. Your sin and trespasses is your debt that could only be paid by the blood of Christ. And because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been forgiven. You have been redeemed. I mean, we should praise God for what he has done through his atoning death on the cross. I'm going to make an intentional point here where I do not see forgiveness or redemption Bear with me for a moment, because I think this is important. As a pastor, I've always want to a shepherd in such a way to help you see what is not consistent with God's word, what is not consistent with Christian living. Biblical redemption and forgiveness are the opposite of what we're currently witnessing in some aspects of our culture. Every day there's a new story of how a, a person's past tweet, Facebook post, or video um, is unsavory or inappropriate. And the moment the problematic statement is discovered, the person's like canceled. Y'all have heard of cancel culture by now. 
And as a result, and I've seen this time and time again, just peruse through the news and you'll, you'll find it, the person loses their job. For some people, their life has been destroyed. Why? Because there are aspects of our culture that is on mission to take down and cancel anyone who disagrees with them. What we are witnessing right now is so unrighteous. What we are witnessing in our culture is anti-forgiveness. It's not Christian, and it is certainly not biblical. The church must not degrade herself into this kind of nonsense and hate. There's another way I've seen the church take on a posture of anti-forgiveness while also not creating space for people to experience redemption. When the heart of the people in the church become hard to the people that disagree with them, then we see the church walking out of step, oftentimes with the gospel. They disagree with me, that, that group of people, whatever. Our heart becomes hard. And we say, we don't want that. And we're active against speaking against that. Now, two things must be true at the same time for the church. We must defend the truth of God's word at every corner with a heart of love. We also must love those well who need to hear redemption and forgiveness through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus shares a parable about the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, Peter, of all people, not surprised here, asks him a question. Here it is. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy seven times. Now, for the record, the point is Jesus is not putting a cap on how often you should forgive people. You should be ready and willing to forgive immediately. The essence of the Christian faith is being forgiven by God of your sins and trespasses, and then you forgive others of their sins. The essence of the Christian faith is being redeemed by God and hoping that others can experience redemption in their everyday life. Many shadows of earthly redemption in our culture can lead to, toward a greater redemption that is from God. And here is where the church has a hopeful message for the entire world. Anyone who comes to this church, Redemption Hill Church, will not be canceled because of something they did in the past. No. Anyone seeking redemption and forgiveness will hear about God's saving plan to save sinners. Grace will be extended over and over and over again. What is the cure to the disease that is cancel culture? Forgiveness. The message of redemption and grace. Speaking of grace, what else do we read in this passage? The astonishing truth of God's mystery revealed to you is that God the Father delighted in forgiving your sins and trespasses through the death of his Son. Look at the latter part of verse 7 and then getting into verse 8. Your redemption is, according to the riches of God's grace, his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Like, that piece of scripture 
should hardly need to be preached. He lavished his grace upon you. God's grace was and continues to be lavished upon your life. You didn't jump into the ocean of God's grace. He pushed you right in. (laughs) Experience all this. You've been completely covered and surrounded by God's grace because of Christ. The moment you became aware of God's will to redeem was when you began to understand saving grace. And to the point I just made, we the church have so much grace to extend to other people. You got to hear this. We have so much grace to extend to other people. Why? Because we've experienced it for ourselves. Man, we've experienced it. God just poured it upon our lives. And now we have the great privilege to turn around and be like, grace. Grace to you. The grace I want this person to, to receive is ultimately not from me, but for the one who extended it to me. Grace. God has lavished his grace upon us, and may we lavish his grace upon other people as well. So in sum, in summary, believers, Christians have experienced the abundance of God's grace in the redemption of Christ. Wisdom and insight have made known to God's people through the secret plan of God, namely that at the fullness of time, God will unite in his dear son Christ all things in heaven and things on earth. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper has said, there's not one square inch of this world over which Jesus does not stand and say, this is mine, mine. So Christ is the provision of redemption and the one in whom God unites all things in heaven and on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we have a humble posture where we know and celebrate and sing about your amazing grace, your grace that has been lavished upon us, has been given to us. We know that it has been lavished upon us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So in a few moments as we celebrate the Lord's table and we we reflect and remember the death of our Savior, may we also remember what you've given us. Yes, you've lavished your grace upon us, but you've also given us new life. you set us free from stain of sin. And as a result, we want to live in a manner worthy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to do that for our good, for the good of those around us, and for the honor and glory of your great name. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.